Hey folks, in this interview, it's all about documenting climate change with Meta Lampkoff. This is Twitter. Hey, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, I have the distinct pleasure of chatting with Meta Lampkov. She is amazing in many respects. You're going to find out a couple of them in this interview. The main thrust of, the, of this interview, though, is climate change and some of the work she's doing to raise awareness of that issue with her camera. So, Meta, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good. Thank you. And thanks for having me. No, I'm excited to have you. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about. So um, through the eyes of your camera, the planet is under siege, right, in many ways. So um, this this project, as people can see in the blog post for this episode, this project that you're working on called uh, Water to Dust, give me the, the gist of that project and, and how how it came to be. Um, it really came to be from just the experience of living through the drought that, you know, that's about seven, eight years ago now. Uh, you know, everything around me was turning brown. You know, the water bills were going up and, you know, there was water restrictions. And I really felt that, you know, I needed to learn. I was curious what was going on. Um, at the same time, I was accepted into a mentorship program. And it was sort of the perfect curiosity to keep moving along with and accepting this story mm-hmm. um yeah i think that's sort of what brought it on to begin with it's just like any other any other project curiosity right brought it on and through it's interesting so you live in california right now in southern california and as we were talking before offline you were telling me that you narrowly missed the the wildfires uh that that southern california recently experienced tell take us through that that sort of experience a little bit because that was that obviously a contributor to your passion for documenting climate change right yeah i've I've lived in malibu till three months before the fires wow and uh, I, I, um, I have evacuated many times. I have been in Malibu while there's fires. And I lived in a part of Malibu where there was kind of an expectation that the fire wouldn't quite reach there or the firemen would protect us. So it was considered sort of a safe area um, in many people's minds. So when the morning of the fire, I mean, like, I can't forget, because I actually had a friend from Malibu that was coming to stay in my house because I had to go out of town. Uh, to take care of my dogs and I texted her at seven in the morning going you know get out of bed get out of bed leave and I wasn't really concerned about what I had to do I just wanted to make sure she was leaving because what I was seeing online you know on Twitter on images that were coming out of there you know just looked way beyond anything I'd ever seen before yeah. Uh, and I think from working on climate issues and fi- like I haven't documented fires before, but this this was a different monster than we had seen before in, in Malibu. Yes, yeah, so it's a it's a story that was very close to home. Uh, it was an event that affected every friend of mine, everybody I know and has profoundly affected me. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because when when you tell people that yes, my, yeah, I live in Malibu, California, some of the most expensive real estate on earth, right? Um, it's interesting because I've seen this. There's a there's a different sort of perspective that a lot of Americans have, or people around the world have in general. They're like, ah, yeah, those people just go buy another house, right? They're in Malibu. There's probably <laughs> one of twelve houses they own anyway. When that's not really the case, and it's it's a psychological sort of impact. Right? Right? Can you can you did you experience yeah. that that sort of the oh prejudice? <laughs> oh, I had massive I, and prejudice is probably a really good word to use. Yeah. Um, first of all, not there is definitely a section of Malibu that has incredibly expensive real estate, probably some of the most expensive in the world. Mm-hmm. But there is also just normal people who go about their normal lives and normal incomes. Um, I mean, to give you a perspective, real estate in LA in some perspectives, more expensive than pick some of the areas in Malibu. And a lot of the people I photographed are people that often don't have enough insurance to cover this or, you know, and also on another note, I don't think we should decide on what we photograph depending on the financial situation of the people. I think right. you lose your home, you lose your home and all your belongings. And that was a really big disconnect when I tried to tell this story. There was this kind of thing, oh, well, it's Malibu. And I would even have people say to me as I was driving, like, you know, one evening I had um, dinner with friends and I said, you know, I'm running late. I need to have a shower because I stink. Mm-hmm. And um, they were like, well, you know, we like eating dinner early. Can you, you know, try and make an effort? I'm like, I need a shower. And it's because of stunk of ashes. And when I got to the dinner, which was six weeks after the fires, they asked me people had started to rebuild yet. Well, it took eight to nine months to clean the debris up. Yeah. I mean, nobody is rebuilding. And on another note, uh, I, I just saw a friend of mine who's an architect. She just had, I think, the eighth house cleared, meaning out of, I think it's 450 homes that actually physically burned. You know, there's 150 1,500 structures, but I think it was 150 homes in Melbourne. You know, structures can be schools uh, and, you know, many other things. She, it's no, the eighth house has been cleared, meaning it's now nine months later, eight houses have been okay to start building and like, uh, starting updating code, just to give you an idea. That is, that is, that's, that's scary and, and depressing at the same time. You know, one of, one of the things that I'm sure, you know, especially people that were affected by the fires may remember was the, the president came down and visited and gave some advice about what what Californians could have done to prevent the fire. Um, now that I have you on the hot seat, I'm interested. Literally on the hot seat, I'm interested to know how did you how did you take that? Because I think you said something about you know you should have raked the leaves or something like that, right? When people like you said are are suffering through you know burning real estate. But what was what was your feeling about that? The honest truth is I can't exact, I exactly remember what he said, but I just remember laughing yeah. and shrugging and going, he's as always confused and doesn't know and hasn't read up or studied what he's talking about. So it's, it's you know, it's a clueless person, essentially speaking. And yeah. I think he was really referring to, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, um, forest health in the fact that, you mm-hmm. know, 
there was a connection to that. And and yeah, yeah and forest health is a, is a different issue, but you know, somewhat connected to wildfires. But yes, I mean, he even came to Melbourne, but I can't remember what he said there. It, it, but I remember standing on the side of the road in Malibu, and I was actually standing at a roadblock because nobody could, could get in to Malibu. For, oh, God, it was ages. Um, I think this must have been the eighth or tenth day he came to visit, and people was trying, still trying to get in and see their homes. But if you were, if you wanted to go in, you couldn't drive it. You could walk in, and you could walk out. They would let you do that at that stage, but you know people were desperate. And, he, and we worked out that we were close and shut off, you know, at road points and roadblocks, because he was there, and everybody was so angry and furious that this man had turned up. Yeah. You know, they, were, they started making signs and honking, and but it was all. And then he drove up to Pepperdine, and you know, nobody saw him really. Yeah, jeez, yeah. Well, let, let's switch gears to a more positive <laughs> look at this. <laughs> so this interview obviously is about photography and the, the documentary pro- process. I'm really curious to learn about that. Um, in the in the story that uh, the photographer penned that this, this interview is sort of associated with, you mentioned that there was, before you started this project, there was a mountain of research and homework that you had to do before clicking the shutter. Take me through that, because a lot of people will say, "Yeah, it's, you know, just go out there with your camera, get your get get a you know a little Fuji camera, and go snap some pictures, <laughs> then write the story." It wasn't that simple, right? What? Take me through that part of it, the research. No, I I am I love researching. To me, researching is as important as taking the picture, and I would say if you take the period I work on issues, I spend 70 to 80% researching before, you know, that that takes up the time of, you know, I shoot 20% probably. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, you know, as an example, I did a story on tree mortality in the Sierra Nevada mountains. I, you know, I got reached out to biologists, to national forest services, to national parks. Uh, I spoke to the Sierra Nevada Conservancy, they connected me to people. Then I got through to forest management in a specific section. Then I spoke to firemen and fire crews that set prescribed burns. And then I go. And then I asked more questions again. I've reached out to experts on um, UC Davis and that new climate experts or climate scientists at um, UCLA. Um, there's two things I think that happens with research. First, I'm curious. I need to know where am I going? What am I looking for? Because you know, the, the complicated thing about shooting climate change, in a way, it's transparent. You know, it's not pink or purple, and it doesn't move around in cute little outfits and all. They're not sexy. I have to go and see what I shoot to help tell this story, to help explain something that can be very complex and subtle, or it can be really extreme, but how do we connect it and make it right and connect the science and the dots? Yeah. And then the other thing is going, speaking to people. Uh, learning from them, learning through their experiences, the landscape around them, what's happening. But again, you've got to really dig deep because it's not obvious all the time. And often the very people that are affected and I am feeling these effects uh, don't really understand them necessarily or think that just sort of the natural progression of the environment around them. Mm-hmm. So... So, so then I get that information and, 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 and that experience and that knowledge, and then I go back and then I do more research and then go, oh, you know, 
I, I might find a professor that knows about something I saw, was curious about while I was out there. I try and bring him or her and go, you know, I was just on this trip to look at this one specific issue. I'm curious what your experience have been. What do you see? What do you feel? So, and it's really interesting because I've become the go-between. Often the scientists that works on specific issues have never been to these places. And there's, so I, I kind of have the experience of seeing and knowing the science. So it beca- it's really interesting. Now, do you do you feel like you become the uh, an expert? Like if you're if you're talking to a professor or, or a, a climate scientist or someone that knows more than you do about the topic, of course, it's you're absorbing yeah. information. But on the opposite side of it, like you said, there are people that don't really understand what's happening to them. They're just sort of rolling with the punches. Do you find yourself in the position of educator when you go in with your camera and sort of explaining and 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 being you know sort of an evangelist for for you know, climate change. That's, <laughs> that's probably not a word I want to use. Um, yeah. uh, yes, I don't believe in preaching in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I really go to listen. My job is to listen. Mm. And if people ask me what I think, then I'm honest. You know, I am. I tell them why I'm there. I tell them the reason. So you know, it's often very blatantly climate change issues, uh, but they can be subtle climate change issues. You know, it can be particular dust that's you know exasperated by drying conditions that are blowing in the wind and affecting people's health. You know, so there can be very subtle little things. Um, yeah, I, t- I tell them, but I would never preach. I never. It's not my job. Um, most of the people I work with, I would sort of, I don't know, it's more than 50-50 believe in climate change, but I also work in a lot of people with a lot of people that don't believe climate change is happening. And I also work with people that have specifically in public health issues uh, and often end up in migrant communities, you know, people that are here undocumented or, you know, don't feel safe and they're too scared to tell me what's actually happening to them. Or they tell me in a very sort of roundabout way. But see, that that's where I want to understand it because you, Metta, you don't strike me as a, as a, as a person that's shy, right? <laughs> so, so, and you're passionate. I mean, your passion for this project comes through. So if you're not shy and you're passionate about a project and then someone you know, tells you, you know, yeah, that thing you're working on, it's a myth. I don't, I don't really believe it. You know, I want to know what that reaction is. Do you, do you just internalize it and walk away and, or do you <laughs> confront and destroy? Wait, what do you do? <laughs> what do, you do? I, I really, it really has to do. First, I think when I go out working as a documentary photographer slash photojournalist, it is just not my job to tell my opinion. It, it just isn't unless somebody really specifically asks me. And I've had people that really genuinely, genuinely ask that wants to know and wants to understand. And that's fantastic because then it can go, okay, I'm definitely going to spend some time with you and, and give you the time of day to see what I'm seeing and my experiences I've had. Um, but I'm not there to change their mind in a way. That's, I, I just don't feel like in that moment, it's not my job. But... I've also had people be very aggressive towards me and say, mm-hmm. you know, this is you know, it's bullshit, you shouldn't be here, um, you know, how dare you, and you're wrong, and, you know, this is the natural progression, there was ice age, now we're hot, and now it's going to get cold again, or, you know, it's, it's all the normal, you know, progression of nature. Um, 
I cannot be bothered to try and convince them because if you haven't, if you're at the stage, you know, especially, you know, somewhat educated in America and you haven't worked it out, then I'm really the wrong person. To <laughs> <laughs> He's like, if you, don't, if you don't get it by now, dude, I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time. <laughs> no, I, it's like, I, I, well, like, the only thing I might say where we can choose to believe in science or not. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would imagine it's a lot like uh, religion, right? Because you're not going to change someone's mind either in either direction to move from one religion to another or to believe in religion or whatever. It's almost like, you know, banging your head against concrete and you have better things to do. I would imagine like, you know, speaking to the people who believe you. I don't think you can compare religion and science because there's a very religion is is philosophy and that mm-hmm. and, you know. But not not not, not yeah. comparing religion and science, but comparing the, the trying to convince someone of something, right? You know, if you don't believe in the science or you don't believe in the religion, you're not going to convince them. It's not even worth your time, right? And it's also something because I'm an, an I am an atheist. I am. I always really dislike people who wanted to change my mind. Mm-hmm. In a religious way, not I have no you know full respect for anybody believing in whatever religion they believe in and what they practice. I, you know, I, in, in fact, I appreciate it, and I I love culture and and religion for other people, not for me. But you know, I don't want somebody to brainwash me about their religion. But I think that's where the science becomes different. I mean, I might have gone off track there. We no, no, this is great. We are getting into yeah. the mind of meta. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't want, you know, I think there's a difference between about being educated and learning and being curious and wanting to understand better what goes on around us. To me, this is what this is about. You know, we have to stop denying science. And, you know, science isn't, and again, science isn't a god. It isn't like everything, some things change and fluctuate and you know, it's not static. It moves because new things get discovered. But, you know, I really don't know what to say to people that don't believe in climate change because they just have to look around themselves. I mean, look what's happening, you know, just in the general news cycle every single day. Mm-hmm. And I always say to people, you know, think about this. If you had fallen asleep 20 years ago and you woke up today and read the news, it would be so self-evident because it would be such a shock to see what's going on. And if you read it and said, you know, this is what's going on, this is why, this is what's happening, you'd go, yeah. But there's this slow move, you know, de- you know, degradation. So people are like, it's. I feel like they're getting used to it nearly. And then we get used to being in shock and be getting used to the news cycle. Mm-hmm. And then I think we shut off and then we just go, oh, well, you know. Yeah. Then you get you get to the point where you think, well, you know what? It's bigger than I am. I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to live my life unless you're meta. And then you pick up your camera (laughs) and you go tell a story about it. So the one of the one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about specifically about documentary work. Right. Um, We talked about the research that goes into it, which is a mountain. You said like 80 plus percent of the time that you spent on this is spent doing homework before you even click the shutter. On the other end of that, do you feel like the work that you're doing is affecting change? I would imagine that's the main goal is to raise awareness and to affect change. Do you feel like it's doing its job? I think this is a particular difficult time to do that in in America. And it's totally connected to the 
to the current government. You know, if you have a government that denies climate change, it creates the perfect excuse for everybody else, regardless if they believe in it or not, regardless of how they feel about it, just to give them that little bit of an excuse to not deal with it, essentially. Um, so I think I have really felt that. I felt uh, when I started this project, while you know, when Obama was the government, there was a strong movement politically. It was in the news. Let's do stuff. Let's, you know, let's agree to the, you know, to to the Paris and climate change accord. Let's, you know, let's move forward. But now we're going backwards, and and that's affected me. I think less people are interested. I also think the news cycle is so busy with Trump that you know, I mean. What else is it to nearly write about, which is wrong? <laughs> but I think there is a certain, you know, denial attached to being able to not deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scary part is, is I, was, I wanted to get your your thoughts on this and your perspective. The, the the whole head in the sand thing, where you know what. It's not my problem, you know, if I'm a millennial or younger or something, you know, you know, it's or even if I'm older, if I'm older in my 50s, 60s, 70s, you know what? I had my time with the planet. It's over. I'm not even going to be here for the rising sea levels. Or if you're younger, you may have your head in the sand. You may be thinking, you know what? You know, there's plenty of time to fix it. I'll, I'll go do something that I can affect. Do you see that you know, in, your, in your documentary work? Do you see that sort of bifurcation of opinions with people just sort of, yeah, it's not my problem? Or, or do you see people engaging in some cases? No, I see younger people engaging much more. Um, and I think, no, I think it has to do with uh, very closely with political beliefs. I think, unfortunately, climate change has become, you know, republic democratic thing. Mm-hmm. Especially in America, I don't think it's like that in Europe. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, that is that way. <laughs> um, it's become political. So I think nearly that some people, is regardless of their core real beliefs, they're going to say, "Well, I don't believe in that." Then it's economic beliefs. You know, some person believes, "Well, I'd rather have a tax cut or make more money or whatever." So then I'm not going to deal with this. Um, so I don't think it's an age issue. I often think it's to do with what people do for a living. And their fundamental economic beliefs. It's very closely tied to economics, yeah. I think. You know, I'm, I'm curious about how your your camera, let's talk about gear a little bit. Um, so I'm curious about, in a lot of other genres, or, or photographers from a, a bunch of other genres that I speak to, they tend to say, especially street photographers and photojournalism, obviously, uh, but they'll say the camera acts as a passport into situations that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to get into or be welcomed into. In the case of this project, did, did you find that, that your, your Fuji camera allowed you to get in places that they would have said, nope, sorry, ma'am, you can't come in here? Yeah, I mean, I think having the camera on me makes me feel like, you know, I have a cape, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think a camera, is, it makes me say, well, I'm here to do this, you know, so that helps, and they see a camera. Yeah. Um, it, it's a it, passport, yeah, you know, and then I, I think I also have this, this other that might be my little piece of luck. Here in America, I'm a foreigner, but I don't think people can really place me, and I also speak Spanish. I grew up in Spain. Mm. Um so this is, so, you know, I, I kind of look like, you know, I guess I look like, you know, white American, but then when they hear me, I have a strange accent. And when I speak, 
you know, especially to um, Latinos, they they can hear my Spanish accent and they're confused. And I think actually that's one of my biggest passports in there, where it's like, oh, who is this person? So they can't really judge me. They can't put me in a box, and that's really helpful. That's good. That is that is your cape, not the camera. Yeah, the, yeah, the multilingual. Uh, you know, your multilingual skills is your your definite cape. Um, yeah. So about gear. So what which which cameras did you choose? I know you shared you're shooting Fuji, but which cameras did you choose for this particular assignment slash job, and and why? Uh, so. Before we continue, you might want to have a break where you see me waving my hands. I shoot with three cameras. I also shoot with a Canon. Can I talk about all of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, okay. this is, this okay. is not a commercial. You can talk about whatever you want. Okay. No, just so you had an editing space. Good. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No. So I shot with three cameras. I shot with my Fujifilm, uh, the X-T2. Am I saying that? I'm really bad. That is. It is X-T2. My yeah. DX250S. And with my Canon 5D Mark IV. And a drone that I can fly, but I'm not actually, I mean, I have a license, I'm allowed to fly, but I'm not licensed to sell my images. Oh, interesting. So you're, uh, the, you know, I had that on my notes to ask you about that because it seems like a, a purpose-built assignment for flying a drone out there. Um, yeah, so, so you, you, how much did you use the drone when you're, when you're doing these shots? I didn't because I didn't use it that much. I did use it, but um, while it, there was still debris on the ground, it was so dusty. It was really the last thing I wanted to put my drone up into. Um, and for some reason, you know, I still think my camera is the best because I'm yeah. trying to get people. So the drone is great to get this wide one image. I mean, it's great for one or two images, but to me, Having my still camera is still so much better. Yeah, it's like it's like the the establishing shot in movies, right? You always see the wide shot to let you know where you are, then the medium, then the close up. But you're not going to stay on the wide shot the entire time, right? Unless it's some sort yeah. of Godzilla epic or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and I, you know, drone photography is incredibly fun. I love it. I mean, I could be out there flying my drone every day. Yeah. Uh, but it also takes a lot of time and a lot of battery, and you know, it's it's fickle, it's complicated. And you and and also on the fire zones with falling trees and falling wires everywhere. I, I needed more people, and I'm always alone. I'm I go out. I'm always alone. On on, I mean, on the assignment for the Wall Street Journal, I had a fixer for the two days, but the rest of the time, it's me alone. And then I feel like the drone gets complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's more complex. I would imagine, you know, sort of using a camera like, say, the one of the Fuji cameras or the Canon cameras or whatever you choose to shoot with that day. It's simple. You know, if f-stop shutter speed ISO, then you can concentrate on the story versus yeah. all this other stuff. Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm, you know, I'm curious about the so you were shooting like what is a day in the life look like? I know, obviously, each day was different, but going out there and what is the, the prep day, the prep before you go out to shoot a particular area? What does it look like when you're out there? And then when you come back, what do you do? Do you offload and back up and call? And what's a, what's a day in the life of Meta? So in that, it, with the fire story only, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that really depended on when 
that was so in the beginning it was really fast um you know that was i was like scrambling to charge all my batteries to literally go out with as many batteries as i could get all the lenses in a hard case uh, i have a belt i put an extra lens or two on i have a very sexy fanny pack i put my wallet my keys lip balm everything so that never leaves my body um camera around my neck i always have two bodies with me and it's always my fujifilm and it's my canon mm-hmm. and and then it you know it what happened directs to which camera i pick up um, my preparation is when i was going out when there was mandatory evacuation mandatory means you know there's roadblocks nobody can get in some people stayed but you know it's it's a fire zone and the firemen are out there putting up fires still and um, utilities out there trying to get you know power lines off the ground and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 batteries making sure you have cleaned the lenses as best you can and and you run and then i'd come home download make them look all this good as possible and get them off to new york and then just start again at some ridiculous hour the next morning and go out and then get back at, you know I'd, I'd be back at like 9 10 at night and then work till 11 12 and get up at six Wow. Wow. Now, are, are you post-processing your own work or are you sending the raw files off to New York and letting them handle it? No, you don't do that. You, you do, do your own work. You don't send okay. any raw files to anyone. No. Okay, good, good. Okay, so you handle that and you send them the, the, final, the final files that you want them to see. Yeah. Cool. This is this is crazy. Are you so? How do you how do you feel about the project and the project? How do you like from the beginning of doing this project all the way through to now? How do you feel, if any, has this project changed you as a person? Do you feel like you feel like? I mean, obviously, you're smarter. We get smarter every day. But do you feel like it's fundamentally changed the way you think about things? Yes. Yes. This is project has profoundly changed me. I think I've poured my heart and soul into to doing this. Um, I've learned so much about climate change. I've learned a lot about, you know, people, how it's affecting them. But I think I've become, if anything, like I have become really good at seeing these things and understanding them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I think I've developed as a photographer. I think I've developed as a human being. Um, seeing this and I, I, I think as you know I think documentary photographers are just it's the weirdest job in the world you know you're going into people's homes and you're I mean I end up in places I've never imagined I would be but I feel so lucky like I get to see stuff I get to be present I get to be part of the world and joining in from very subtle com- complicated issues to um you know, um, I, I, what I saw at the, you know, Bulsi Fire in Malibu when I got in and saw people on the beaches, you know, trying to, you know, they, they were sending boats out with food and supplies and water and generators. Being able to see that and um, being able to be, uh, you know, um, documenting prescribed burns and, and tree mortality in the shares. And, and they let me set fires. <laughs> like, I was actually got to light the forest up. You know, wow, that's that's amazing. That's my dream and my happiness right there. Yeah, and this is this is a body of work that will that will hopefully change minds and and live on. Do you have any? What are what are your next plans? What are, what's the next project that that you're going to tackle? 
I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, well, um, I, you can I, give us a hint. Don't tell us exactly. Give, give us a no, little, a little. No, I'm, I'm way too honest. So then I will tell you. Um, I am. I I turn. I, I'm over fifty, and that has really changed how people react to me, speak to me, and how the world treats me, and especially as a woman. Um, so I really wanted to look at this. So I'm looking in. Actually, I want to do with my Fujifilm GFX S50 or whatever it's called. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, I want to do a, a portrait uh, project uh, with women above 40 and where they are in their life, their successes, and, and who they are right now in the world. And and I think it's something I have felt coming, and I'm in the middle of working on, on just starting shooting it and not speaking really you know, I'll reach out to editors when I have a couple of shots and say, you know, do you want to do this with me? But I, I just want to get going because I'm excited about the camera and I'm excited about this project. I love it. I love it. And that's all it takes. So take your passion from one area and focus it on another area. Do you, you Just to, to wrap things up, and you know, like I said earlier, your, your passion for the stuff that you're working on clearly comes through, right? So for the photographers that are out, out there watching this and they're trying to figure out a project like this to sort of get their sink their teeth into what advice would you give them you know in, in terms of things to cover and where to point their camera you mean as ideas rather than as a photographer like like how to find a long-term project yes exactly how to find a long-term project how to get inspired how to get passionate about something well i think you know you gotta go with anything like you gotta find something you really like don't don't go and do what you think you should like you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people go and think, well, this seems cool. I should like this. No. I mean, you could go and shoot your neighbor's dog for the next three years. And I tell you, it could be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm trying to say is you, you have to absolutely dedicate yourself. You have to be really truthful and honest. Um, it's it's painful. It, it's, it's exhausting. It, you have, it's, it's such dedication. And you have to love it. You really have to love and really more than anything, profoundly care about what you're going to go and photograph and the people you're going to engage with. And for me, that has become the land and the people I photograph. To me, just as much as I'm photographing and hoping to talk to people about climate change and tell all these stories, it's also a love letter to California and to our environment and nature that we need to protect. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. A love letter to California. That's that should have been the title. That was it. <laughs> 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 a love letter and pictures to California. Uh, Meta, if people want to see your work, we'll obviously have some photos, um, a photo gallery associated with the blog post. And in this video, I've been overlaying, you know, um, much of your work here or from this particular project. But if people want to see more of it and more of what you're working on or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, follow, follow me along on Instagram, which is my name at Matter Lamkov, M-E-T-T-E, Lamkov, L-A-M-P-C-O-V, and my website. But I think my Instagram is probably where I end up doing the most. Um, I'm fantastically average at keeping my website up, <laughs> except for when I do have assignments, they end up on news on my website. Wait, did you just say fantastically average? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
See, that's perfect. You are clearly a writer. I love that. I'm going to have to borrow that. Fantastically average. That's perfect. <laughs> All right. Uh, Meta Lamkov, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you. And congratulations on the project that you're working on. And please come on again for the next project when, you, when you're ready to talk more deeply about it. So I'm, I'm excited for that. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and also for caring about the story. It's yeah. an incredible, important story and, and caring about the project really means a lot for, to me. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Meta, have a good rest of your week and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. This is Twitter.